This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 2nd of March 2024. I'm Vincent McAvinney, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Welcome wherever you are listening around the world. Coming up on today's programme, we'll have a look through the week's news and culture with author and political journalist Terry Stiasny. Then... The trick is, no more than three. You know, control yourself, but have it every day. Monocle's Fernando Augusto Pacheco takes us on a tour of the world's best biscuits. First, though, here is the news. The UN says many of the Palestinians treated for injuries following a rush on an aid convoy in Gaza on Thursday suffered gunshot wounds. Hamas has accused Israel of firing at civilians, but Israel says most died in a stampede after its troops fired warning shots. Leaders around the world have called for a full investigation. The Nigerian government has demanded almost $10 billion in compensation from cryptocurrency firm Binance. It accuses the platform of manipulating foreign exchange rates through currency speculation and rate fixing, which have seen the Nigerian Naira lose nearly 70% of its value in recent months. And the Brit Awards, the biggest night for British music, are set to take place at London's O2 Arena this evening. 26-year-old singer-songwriter Ray has seven nominations, which could see her make history as the most awarded artist in a single year. She's set to perform alongside Dua Lipa, Jungle, Nigerian rapper Rima and Kylie Minogue, who will receive a special Global Icon Award. And that's your Monocle Radio News. Well, hello and welcome to Monocle on Saturday. The past week has seen the world not only mark the two-year anniversary of Russia's full-scale war on Ukraine, but ask some tough questions about what needs to happen next with further defence funding stuck in the US Congress. The repercussions from Putin's so-called special operation are still being felt far and wide, with Sweden finally joining NATO this week after months of delays. Coupled with Finland's earlier addition, St Petersburg now effectively sits not just on the Baltic Sea, but effectively on the Strait of NATO. Meanwhile, ahead of presidential elections in two weeks, an open-casket funeral was held in Moscow yesterday for opposition activist Alexei Navalny after his suspicious death in an Arctic penal colony. In the United States, despite his continued support for Putin, Donald Trump has all but taken control of the Republican Party once again, as Republican Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell announces he is finally stepping down. Just some of the big stories making headlines, which we're going to discuss with our guest. I'm delighted to say the author and political journalist Terry Stiasny joins me in the show. And Terry, you wanted to pick out first that funeral held yesterday for Alexei Navalny in uh, Moscow. Yes, um, that's right. A lot of uh, images here which are very striking if you look around um, at the papers here in London uh, this morning. So, uh, for instance, uh, in the Financial Times, it says crowds defy Putin... Uh, 
Navalny funeral and there's a picture of the queue of people there who are walking towards uh, the cemetery in Moscow and likewise in The Guardian they show you just you know how many people there were queuing up to to pay their respects um, at the Borisovsky Cemetery um, people who were chanting Putin is a murderer no to war um, and really recognising how, how brave people were to actually be able to to go and pay their respects to, to Navalny. Obviously, a lot of his own family couldn't even be at the funeral because they were in exile. Um, they live outside Russia. They couldn't attend, saying that they would risk arrest if they returned to the country. And despite um, people... You know, merely being told, you know, you risk arrest, this is quite dangerous. That uh, it says 67 people arrested across Russia uh, during the day, and people, you know, might end up on some kind of list with the government. Um, the people really show, showing a lot of courage. Mm, and the pictures are quite dramatic, as you say. Uh, thousands of people heading towards that church to pay their respects, those chants. I mean, they will know there was a heavy, obvious police presence on the ground, but they will know that, of course, the Kremlin and security services in the country will have been filming the whole thing. They will have been recording names and taking down faces and they could be uh, in danger in the coming weeks for having attended this. It is quite a bold act of defiance. And the image really striking is that despite uh, the... Uh, edict that no sort of photography or filming could be done inside the church. Navalny's team did take some quite dramatic pictures because it was an open casket, wasn't yes. it? I mean, that is, you know, traditionally what there is in Russia. I mean, I remember one time, a very long time ago, going to a Russian church and there was, you know, a funeral going on. And I was really sort of shocked at the time. I was quite young to see that that was what there was. But yes, people, uh, you know, with their candles, you know, say, saying goodbye. Um, and, you know, a quarter of a million people apparently watching the live stream of that of that funeral, despite the authorities trying to uh, interrupt the internet access, and and as you say, you know this is the danger. It's not that people it might have been arrested on the day, but that presumably the Kremlin were looking at exactly who was there, and that people could be caught up with or punished later on. But it's interesting reading some of the quotes in the papers from people who had come out um, to attend the funeral. Um, there's someone who only given the name Ivan here. He said, you know, I've come to say goodbye to a real leader. He was the best of us. He told us not to be scared and it's our duty to be here. I am not scared. My fear evaporated a long time ago. And so, you know, there's that famous video that Henri Navalny made telling people, you know, don't be afraid. Um, and a lot of people trying to say, Yes, I'm. Tr- I'm trying not to do that, but you know, other people saying, "Yes, I am scared. I feel pain, but I've got, you've got to have hope. How can you live without hope?" Mm. And Western diplomats, including ambassadors from the U.S. and Germany and Britain's Chargé d'Affaires, uh, attended the funeral. That's quite a bold statement, isn't it? In a week where his widow has accused the West uh, of not doing enough, but also of being boring, and how they've tried to uh, respond to Russia in the last two years. Uh, yes, I mean, I think, you know, that is significant. And I know that the British ambassador, you know, went to, to lay flowers um, at first when, when he had died, even though he, he wasn't actually at this this funeral. But, you know, this is, I suppose, a symbolic uh, show of support. Um, but I guess, yes, there is a limit in that context diplomatically to, to what you can do. But the question is, I suppose, and then people have been discussing this for a while now, what more measures are other countries going to take against Russia, um, given Andre Navalny's death? And, you know, can can they get an agreement on how far you go in terms of are there going to be any further sanctions? Are there going to be further actions that you can take? And this has proved to be something that's quite difficult to get an agreement on. Mm. Um, curious little detail from the funeral as well. Uh, two pieces of music played 
One was from Navalny's favourite film, Terminator 2. Um, music from that was played uh, after his coffin was lowered into the ground. And also a, a version, an orchestral version, I think, of Frank Sinatra's My Way. Which, yeah, is, is very common. I know certainly in, in funerals in, in other countries, I think that it's quite a common choice that people have for their funeral music. It's, yeah, sounds slightly strange in the context of a, of a big a big Russian funeral, but I guess he, he must have known and he presumably had plans and knew what he wanted. Yeah, and that, I mean, my vague memory of the plot of Terminator 2 is a sort of, you know, force taking control of the world, time travel to try and go back and stop it from happening. It's quite an interesting... Is that, uh, is that the one where Arnie says, I'll be back? I can't remember. I think that might be the first... I can't, oh, yeah, it might be the second one, actually. But yeah, quite quite an interesting choice there. Uh, but yeah, some quite remarkable photos uh, in the papers of that funeral, front and centre. His very brave mother who fought to get his body back from that prison um, and just sort of the worst side of the Russian states on full display over the past few weeks. Well, we're going to turn now to a story closer to home. Uh, And last night, uh, not far from where we're sitting now here at Midori House, about sort of two miles away, uh, Rishi Sunak pulled the big card when it comes for communications from a British prime minister. There was a lot of panic yesterday afternoon that potentially he was about to announce a general election because he announced uh, late in the day that he'd be making a statement from Downing Street in front of the big black door. Now, for anyone, Terry, not from the UK, what does that usually symbolise? It usually symbolises some uh, big national event or some big national crisis and you know as soon as rumours go around that the Prime Minister is going to do this he's going to speak in front of Downing Street you know the lectern comes out there's always somebody who brings a lectern and puts it in the street and all the journalists are uh, in this very cold dark street Downing Street is always cold and it always feels I can dark. I can confirm that and there are no <laughs> toilets there and are there's no, toilets. no facilities it's not a fun place yeah. and particularly on a Friday afternoon at 20 to 6 uh, when particularly lots of political journalists have been up half the night because there's just been a by-election. It's not optimum timing in terms of, you know, certainly as far as journalists are concerned, to make a big statement. But it often does mean, as you say, you know, an election's going to be called, some drastic measure is going to be taken, um, and rumours go around, you know, what is this? And then, then the symbolic, the thing that happens is when an official brings the lectern out, everyone always looks to see whether there is the official crest on the front of the lectern. Because if the Prime Minister is making a statement as the Prime Minister, you're allowed to have the big government logo on the front of the lectern if that's not there it means he's making a political statement and then everyone goes into absolute panic oh my god they're calling an election because he hasn't put the official government logo mm. because this then becomes a party political statement and it is so, a weird quirk in british politics <laughs> i think of like the hat as the hatch act in america where you can't you know if you're joe biden and you're campaigning as a democrat you can't sort of do it from the White House, but we do allow the backdrop of Number Ten Downing Street for party political messages. Don't yes, we? but then we have this this weird distinction that is sort of shown by you know if the emblem's like, there or not. If yeah, the emblem. Anyway, the emblem was there. We are not having an election, not quite yet. Um, but what the Prime Minister did do um, is described in the Times this morning is banish this hatred from our streets. He was talking about uh, feeling the the importance. He felt that there are sort of threats to democracy essentially going on. So the whole discussion in Britain really this week has been there's been a lot about protests, about whether there are unacceptable threats to MPs, particularly when they're debating uh, the Middle East and the situation in Gaza. A lot of MPs are feeling under threat. Um, And earlier in the week, the Prime Minister had said, 
use this weird phrase, there is a growing consensus uh, that there is mob rule. And it's, it's just a bad choice of words. You can't have a growing consensus and mob rule at the same time. You know, we, you know what do we want? Mob rule. When do we want it? Um, but anyway, he has obviously thought this through a bit further and made a big speech in which he talked, quite unusually for him, a bit more about his background, saying you know how proud he was to be Britain's first uh, ethnic minority prime minister, but saying it's unacceptable that either Islamists or the far right are threatening democracy. But, you know, apart, and it felt, it was not bad in itself, but it felt like a bit of an afterthought. It felt like this had it come... It felt like a first draft. It felt like this had come late on in the week. Well, he'd done this sort of weird, you know, consensus on mob rule statement earlier in the week. And it felt like he'd suddenly rushed to catch up and not quite done it because listening to this speech, you were like, oh my goodness, is he going to announce something really strict? Is he going to announce a massive crackdown on protests? Mm. What is he going to do about it? And you got to the end and thought, well, he hasn't really said very much about no, what there was he's no going to do policy about it. apart from potentially if you if you aren't a British citizen and you do protest, you're at threat for deportation, it seemed at one point he suggested that. And also that, you know, well, we're going to work a bit more and have a, you know, have a network or have, you know, try to do more to prevent extremism, but not really saying what that, that was going to involve. Um, you know, talking about uh, the election of, of George Galloway in Rochdale and saying that that was uh, beyond alarming um, because, you know, George Galloway had, you know, he accused him of dismissing the Hamas attacks, of glorifying Hezbollah. Um, and that was, you know, borne out a little bit by uh, George Galloway. He's always been a, a combative person. He's been mm. elected in by-elections lots of times. And just for anyone around the yeah. world who doesn't know who George Galloway was, let's uh, just slightly explain. He was a Labour MP. He's been around British politics for decades. Yeah. He was kicked out of the Labour Party over in the, the early Iraq 2000s yeah. over the Iraq War. He was once known, actually, as the member for Baghdad Central because yeah. before the first Gulf War, he went and met Saddam Hussein uh, and sort of shook praised his hand, his, praised him. Ability, I think e- exactly, uh, and it's been highly controversial. And he's, also, you know, he's been a presenter on, you know, Russia Today. He's worked yeah. on Iranian. He's done TV turns stations, on, you know, you Celebrity know. Big Brother, famously acting as a cat with Rula Lenska at one point in a very cringeworthy clip that's always worth rewatching on YouTube. But he also, so in the years since he's been kicked out of the Labour Party, he's bounced around other groups. He's now the leader of sort of the British Workers Party. But his raison d'être is to kind of find by-elections, which he has done previously successfully and unsuccessfully and to really dial up things. He's been accused of having quite nasty tactics of intimidation of voters and he sort of latches onto one issue. In this case, in Rochdale, he's jumped onto Gaza and he has been a long-term supporter of the Palestinian cause uh, but he's used that uh, so that, you know, to locals saying, you know, this is a vote for a local MP and he's made it entirely not about local issues but about Gaza. Yeah, and he won, you know, he won a seat which had been previously held by Labour as quite quite a uh, a safe seat. But I think, you know, I've seen Galloway in action over many years, and this is what he does. He's quite a persuasive orator, but mm. when he's interviewed by journalists, he has this undercurrent of threat, I think you can only describe mm. it as. And certainly yesterday... On full display yesterday with doing, multiple journalists. Uh, yeah, yeah, with interviews with, with journalists. And he had a whole bunch of supporters around him who then started sort of chanting and being hostile towards mm. the journalists. And you can understand why people feel intimidated because if that's how you behave towards a journalist, how else are you going to behave? But yeah. you know, And he's he kind does, of a, yeah. a Trumpian figure, a bit like Alex Salmon. They've got that same strain, don't they? They're very... Sort of, you know, charismatic, charismatic, but also quite threatening. Some, yes, yeah. yeah, but then sort of like to pretend that they aren't, but it is definitely threatening. I mean, and Labour lost 
their candidate in this because he was found to have made what were deemed to be anti-Semitic remarks when it comes to the state of Israel. So Labour didn't actually field a candidate, for which Keir Starmer has had to apologise. Ultimately, you know, George Galloway is going to be now backbench MP for a couple of months, and then at the next election he'll likely lose this. But it does show a problem, doesn't it, for the British Labour Party, and they've had this great run of, I mean, their lead at the moment is about 26 points. They've won by-election after by-election, turning over historic majorities. But this does highlight the same way that Joe Biden's had in America in the Michigan uh, primary this week with um, Arab Muslim voters. It does highlight that there could be a problem for Labour in their response to Gaza with uh, Muslim voters in Britain. Yes, and I think, you know, uh, this was obviously, this was a sort of a slight one-off. This was a strange situation where you had the Labour candidates, you know, being, they withdrew their support essentially because it was too late to change and, and have another candidate. And had they chosen someone else, this, this whole scenario might not have arisen. But it does illustrate that there is a problem for Labour here. And, and Keir Starmer yesterday was basically backing what Rishi Sunak had to say. So he was right to advocate unity. We need to condemn unacceptable, intimidatory behaviour. Uh, Behavior. But I think, you know, certainly as an election approaches, there is a bigger problem here for all the parties. You know, how do you stop once MPs and would-be MPs have to actually go out in the street and campaign and go and meet people and go and meet voters in sort of you know, situations where they don't know what's going to happen. Mm. And when you... two of their yeah, two of two their, their kind have been, have killed, been killed in the yes. last decade by members of the public. I mean, one of the really good features generally of the British the way British politics works is that it is quite open. You know, members of Parliament now on Saturday mornings, most of them will be sitting in a in a village hall or in an office somewhere, mm. meeting their constituents. And if you've got a problem with your your drains or your passport or something, you can go and see them and say, yeah. "Can you solve this problem for me?" And they have to they have to do that. But you know. The danger is that if someone is is hostile, and a lot of them have to take security measures now to make yeah. sure you haven't got sort of random people coming up who might who might threaten them, um, you know, to make sure that they're safe. And when you're obviously going around, you know, shaking hands and kissing babies, people will want to know that their MPs and their candidates are are safe. Yeah, that is a great part of the British system. Having worked for an MP and sat in on those surgeries, um, you know, people get a, a slot they can come and they can ask you about anything, and you have to take it away and work on it for them. But when we did it back, you know, this was sort of 2010 time, it was just, these are the hours, come along, queue up and go. Now, when you talk to MPs, they need people's names beforehand, there's appointments, as you say, securities, often they're in specialist rooms where there's panic alarms. Mm. I mean, it, it ha- the threat level has definitely risen for and often MPs. often they don't, yeah, they used to say, come along to, you know, the village hall or whatever it mm. is, and now they will not necessarily say, this is the place that I'm going to be, because they are worried, you know, if you want to come and meet the MP, you ask first and then they'll tell you, and then tell you where, come. Where, yeah. where, where to go. Ultimately, Ultimately, you know, MPs are feeling intimidated. There's worries that might affect how they vote on things. Some, though, are standing down. Rishi Sunak is going to deliver his, have his last budget, we think, before the election this week. We think he's going to try and cut taxes by finally reneging on the non-bomb tax status, uh, which is something they've refused to do for 14 years. Do you think this speech last night, though, ultimately, did it win him any votes or would people just sort of scratch their heads after it? Um, I think it will depend if people have noticed it, partly because of the timing. Obviously, it's featuring heavily in the papers. Um, I think people will like him 
talking a bit more about himself, you know, this slightly uh, American message almost. It's, you know, it's not the colour of your skin, the God you believe in, where you were born that will determine your success. It's just your own hard work and endeavour. You can kind of imagine an American presidential candidate saying mm. that. And actually he's been reluctant to talk about, you know... He's never own... le- leaned into trying to be a British Obama, has he? No, I mean, yeah. but, you know, he's uh, talking a bit more about his... I mean, obviously we hear a lot about, you know, his mum was a pharmacist and all of those kinds of things. We, but he doesn't really lean into that. And I think that was that was quite good. Um, but I think, you know, it needs something a, a bit more concrete. And I think, mm. you know, Rishi said he's not always the most uh, persuasive speaker. He's always a little bit awkward and, you know, so, but... You know, he 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 gave it a good shot, I think. But the question is, was this just an afterthought, and was it a bit too late? Mm. Well, we will see. Uh, now to a story uh, coming uh, from uh, Austria. Um, tell us a bit about this because it is fascinating. This is a fascinating story. So, um, if I don't know if you've been following at all the story of uh, Jan Marsalek and Wirecard. So, Wirecard was a sort of a financial firm which uh, collapsed basically in uh, twenty twenty when the company couldn't find two billion euros in its assets, which it said were somewhere in the world. We're we're not sure where they are, um, but this money didn't exist. Uh, the company collapsed, and this is one of Germany's biggest financial scandals. Um, and the, the chief operating officer, Jan, a man called Jan Marslek, um, born in Austria in his, in his 40s, completely disappeared. Nobody knows where he went. Um, nobody has uh, really seen him in public since 2020. He's obviously uh, wanted uh, in Germany uh, for on charges. Um, but now The Insider, which reports on Russia and does investigative uh, journalism, along with the Austrian paper Der Standard and the German magazine Der Spiegel, have done a big uh, investigation into uh, what might have happened and what uh, more about his background. And I'm just going to read you a a chunk here from The Insider, which sort of sums up in like a Hollywood pitch style. It says, the never before told story of how the Austrian born whiz kid was recruited to Russia's largest and most notorious spy agency, the GRU, bears all the hallmarks of a genre bending ham thriller. Sasha Baron Cohen as Bernie Madoff, the Bond villain. It's a saga replete with honey traps, MiG fighter jets, erotic models, sinister ex-spooks, even more sinister mercenaries, counterfeit passports, fake priests taking syphilis tests and cheap disguises. Just like, now read on. I mean, this is a very, very long article, but essentially, um, so it's worth it. If you've got some spare time this weekend, have a, have a read uh, on The Insider. But um, essentially alleging that Jan Marslet had for a long time been uh, working with the GRU, that he had travelled, uh, amongst other things, to Libya. He'd gone to Syria, where he was uh, shooting off weapons, um, that he was recruited um, via a, a Russian sort of erotic actress, perhaps politely putting it, <laughs> uh, and through that met um, you know, met somebody in 2013 who was, who was essentially a Russian spy. Um, so so, yeah, this is just the most mind blowing, you know, from somebody who was kind of, you know, people thought, wow, he's a, he's a, you know, amazing, you know, financial whiz kid, and then it just completely disappeared. Um, and it's raising, particularly for the Austrian press, these questions about links. You know, Vienna is widely believed to be sort of crawling with Russian spies, mm. essentially, um, and questions about, you know, what influence Russia might still have in Europe and, and uh, what this guy was up to. Yeah, I mean, if you pitch this to Netflix, who I'm sure actually will make an adaptation of it, it would sound 
bonkers. You'd sound sort of, it would sound too much, <laughs> yeah, wouldn't it? It would sound a bit like, so can you just tone it down a little bit? <laughs> yeah, you, know? you jumped the shark you, already. You know, okay, the bit where he says, you know, he's taken on the identity of, of a Russian Orthodox priest and is, has taken on this, this guy's uh, secret identity. Yeah, then maybe that's a, a little bit implausible, you know, but, you know, <laughs> where he flies out of, out of Vienna from in a private jet during the middle of COVID and flies to Belarus. You know, it is just, it is an absolutely uh, bizarre story mm. which raises, uh, I think, a lot more questions than it answers. Yeah, and the GRU was behind, you know, serious activity around the world as well. I covered, you know, a few years ago the use uh, by some of their agents of Novichok in Salisbury to sort of, you know, to poison a dissident and his uh, daughter, and they've done other operations around the world, clearly. Um I often with these stories think back for some reason to 2012 and the debate between Obama and Mitt Romney where they were asked what's the biggest threat in the world and Mitt Romney said Russia and sort of everyone kind of laughed at him and said oh you know that's not that's a past threat he's living in back in the Cold War but it does show doesn't it over the course of the last decade really have Western governments Western powers taken Russia seriously enough uh, you know with when Putin got back in their activities things like this you know it, it sounds all mad and, and things like that but they definitely have had operations across vast networks in you know everything from the financial system to the property system uh it does show a bit of naivety on the west part doesn't it Yes, and I think, you know, reading through the details of this story, when he's travelling, you know, he's been travelling all around, you know, this has got links to the situation in Libya, it's got links to uh, Syria, it's got links to all sorts of uh, all sorts of other stories. I mean, it's, you know, it's really complicated to, to make uh, head or tail of. But, you know, if Russia was also involved in, in the financial system and in undermining the financial system in some way, was that a deliberate thing, you know, mm. build up this company and, and bring it down? We don't, we don't know that, obviously. And, you know, the, the German courts are all... Are looking into it, but it just seems to have so many different aspects to it. That, mm. You know, it's kind of hard to get a, a grip on the whole thing. And finally, Terry, a uh, sweet story, but not not <laughs> uh, in a way uh, that has gone absolutely viral this week. And I've got to say, I think it's my favourite story of the week. If you haven't seen the photos of Glasgow's uh, Willy Wonka extravaganza. Uh, that has gone viral. I mean, it started out just being a bit of social media fun and it's ended up, it's in the New York Times this weekend. It's been on TV around the world. Now this, uh, for anyone who hasn't heard, was a Willy's, uh, Willy Wonka's, a sort of classic Roald Dahl story, chocolate experience in Glasgow, the, cap- uh, the c- uh, city in, in Scotland. Uh, and people were promised that they would be coming to an amazing kind of live interactive experience with actors. There'd be an enchanted garden, a twilight tunnel, an imagination lab. There was £35 a ticket um and it turned out to be a pretty horrible old warehouse that wasn't clean that had a couple of props some actors who'd been handed scripts that were clearly generated by ai there wasn't any chocolate around there was only one or two jelly babies per child and half a cup of lemonade this thing was an absolute disaster um terry what do you think of it i think i think the lesson of this is never trust ai (laughs) firstly because apparently all of the images and all of the script for this were were generated by sort of telling Mm. an ai sort of design a a willy Wonka chocolate experience. They then weren't obviously allowed to use the word Wonka because presumably that belongs to the sort of the Roald Dahl, the powerful Roald Dahl uh, estate. Mm. But and they gave all of the actors a script that made no sense. Yeah, it. It and invented also... new characters like yeah. this terrifying character called the Unknown, yes, which is really who was a creepy chocolatier who's and, terrified the and children. Made children cry. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is you know, I think this is part of you know, in a way, a great British tradition. I mean, you know, the Financial Times is saying Willy Wonka and the and the Great British shambles and saying. 
this event fits with the country's long tradition of self-deprecation and the cult of amateurism. I think, it, you know, it fits with the country's long tradition of running a bit of a scam. Mm. Um, I mean, yeah, every, every individual... Christmas there is a story about um, a, terrible a dreadful Lapland, Lapland where they <laughs> basically put some antlers on a horse and, and charge people £50 to go and see it and things like that. Uh, so I think, yes, be, don't believe AI. Um, mm. But I, you've, got to, you've got to have a bit of sympathy, particularly for the actors who were paid apparently £500, or they were offered £500 to pay uh, yeah. for it and not sure if they were going to pay the full amount. Um, and some of them actually really tried their best, you know, with faced with lots of angry parents and crying children to try and say, you know, we've run out of jelly beans. Um, we've only got three <laughs> per child and they're dressed as an Oompa Loompa and they've realised that they've been you know, they've been played. Um, yeah. And they're actually trying really hard to make the children not yeah, cry. I mean, so you've got a lot of sympathy for them in particular. You've got to look at the photos. They're incredible, particularly the very sad Oompa Loompa working what looks like a meth lab, as many people have pointed out. <laughs> Um, but Terry, on this note, do you have a favourite biscuit? Ah, this is you know this is a, a famous trick question in British politics. So every time a politician is interviewed by Mumsnet, which is like a website for uh, for parents, um, and they're always asked, "What is your favourite biscuit?" And I think a lot of people like Ed Miliband and people fell, fell foul of that. I would say, um, in terms of British biscuits, quite fond of a chocolate hobnob, but I haven't okay. eaten any for a long time. Uh, Austrian biscuits, the Manischnitten, which is like a sort of Nutella type wafer thing, comes okay. in a little square pink packet. Those are very good. I have to get those yeah. whenever I go. Well, to Austria. with my Scottish roots. I do love a shortbread. Uh, but that leads us into a special report for you. Biscuits are perhaps the sweet treat par excellence. Every country has its own favourites, and depending on where you travel in the world, people will eat biscuits or cookies, as some prefer to call them at different times of the day. But which country makes the best, and who can lay claim to being the global biscuit champion? Monocle's Chiara Romella called on the services of our in-house biscuit expert, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, to put this question to rest. Coming in number five, it is... Brazil. See, it's not number one, but I still think Brazil produced the most amazing biscuits uh, in the world. And to be honest, some people say biscuits, some people say bolacha in Brazil. There's all sorts of controversies about the name. But the number five, the type of biscuit I chose, I know it's very broad, but artisanal biscuits, or as we call it in Brazil, granny's cookies. You know, it's the artisanal that I love. And I chose, actually, I have an example for you. I bought in my latest trip to Brazil. It's called Shada Cinquorti at 5 p.m. It's kind of a a British connotation, but it's very simple and they're very small and it's made with sugar, butter, cinnamon. I think you should have a taste. This is just an example of those artisanal biscuits I'm telling you. Okay, I'm going in. They're very strange. They almost look like dog biscuits. (laughs) And they're very light as well. They don't feel very heavy on on your hand. Mm. Now, this biscuit, it's delicious, but as far as biscuits go, it's on the simple side. It's got a tiny little bit of cinnamon. It's crispy, but it's tiny. It's such a (laughs) weird kind of shell-shaped little bit. (laughs) But I like that because then you eat like 20 of them and you don't feel full. I mean, you're very right. Brazilians are very simple the way they eat. Perhaps not too much feeling on the biscuit. So that's why I said the list might be controversial. Moving on, coming close to home. Absolutely. And, you know, the British, first of all, they love talking about biscuits and they love saying, is Jaffa Cakes a biscuit or... I'm not even entering this contract. I don't have an opinion on that. So <laughs> Because we could have revealed here and, and for posterity the definitive answer to this conundrum. <laughs> and the one I chose as well. In fact, you can go to Sainsbury's for 32p and you're going to find a packet of one of the most delicious and very simple sweets from the British cuisine, which is the custard cream. 
I love it. Apparently, it's being invented in the UK in 1908. And one thing I noticed during my research, well, you can just look at a custard cream and see they're very... I don't know, very Victorian in their design. I think it's quite sweet. Um, well, literally. Quite literally, yeah. Quite literally. And I like the flavor as well. I think custard cream, the trick is don't have more than three. Unlike those cute Brazilian ones, they, they, they can actually be quite sweet. So just have a little bit with a cup of tea. I think that'll be great. Number three. We're heading to France now. And let's, there's a specific brand, actually, that deserves our third spot. It's Epoilan. They make bread, amazing bread. I mean, they used to have actually a branch here in the UK, but I think nowadays their main market is in France. Every time I go to Paris, I go to Le Bon Marché and I buy this specific biscuit. And I have to say, I say I'm buying Paris, but their roots are in Normandy. But it's incredibly delicious and very chic as well, the packaging. Molino Bianco is a number two. Of course, I think they're part of the Barilla group and they were invented in 1975. And it's funny because as an Italian, I'm sure you have nostalgia for these biscuits. But I think the brand was built on nostalgia because even the logo for Molino Bianco is like an old mill and, and the names of their biscuits like Abracci, or which means hug, right? Exactly. Um, so... I chose Molino Bianco and a specific one. I'll, I'll ask your favorite, but I want you to try this one. It's the Baiocchi Pistacchio. So Baiocchi are some of my favorites. I'm going to take one. You take another. Yes, definitely. And can I tell you a secret? Mm-hmm. I have Baiocchi Pistacchio every day. No! Every single day. How do you stay so wonderfully fit? Well, the trick is no more than three. You know, control yourself, but have it every day. It's kind of my late breakfast, so perhaps <laughs> perhaps around 11 a.m. or something like that. In Italy, people have biscuits for breakfast with coffee, with very milky coffee. So most Italian biscuits are extremely dry for most other countries' palates. And whenever I bring biscuits back from Italy, people are so disappointed because they open the packet and they just can't even swallow the things. But that's because they're not, that's not how you're meant to eat them. You know, they're big old packets and you open them in the morning and you dunk them into your milky coffee and they're off for the day, a sweet breakfast. I don't have it very much anymore, but it does give you a bit of a hit. Okay, finally, we have reached the very pinnacle, the top of our biscuit pyramid. There is one biscuit holding <laughs> and balancing at the top of this precarious structure. What is it? We're going to Japan. Oh, nice. I think it was kind of expected. But again, I'm choosing another brand in particular. And I have to thank our colleague, Kyoko. She's the one who introduced this brand to my life, Yokomoko. It's a fantastic Japanese confectioner from 1969. They have a selection of biscuits. They have the white chocolate one, which is amazing. But the one I decided to pick is called Cigar which means cig- cigarette in French, of course. It's amazing. And I'm sorry, Chiara, I might be a little bit repetitive here, but it's paper thin. It's simple. It's elegant. It's classy. It's not very show-offy in a way. It's very chic, but understated at the same time. And they have different types of cigars. There's the chocolate version. There's the simple one, which of course is my favorite. And one with Earl Grey tea as well. It's quite a specific flavor, but I would recommend, I know they sell online, so if you really want, it might be a little bit expensive if you're outside Japan, but it's worth it. And again, it's the way the Japanese treat something so simple. Clearly, they were inspired by French patisserie, but in somehow they perfected uh, in a way. There's something about going to a department store in mm. Tokyo and just seeing the confectionery aisle where everything is boxed up as if it was 
literal jewellery that is spectacular and just makes you appreciate the tiny intricacies and, and the perfection that goes into everything. So I think despite everything and despite our respective patriotism, it's a deserved win. Grazie. Thank you to Chiara and Fernando. And that's all for Monocle on Saturday. Thanks to our producer and studio engineer, Mariella Bevan. My guest was Terry Stiasny. Monocle on Saturday returns next weekend. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Goodbye and thank you for listening. <laughs>